Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. The first time I saw Ernestine Eckstein, 30 years ago now, I had no idea who she was, but I'll never forget the image. I was looking at black and white photographs of an October 1965 picket line in front of the White House, organized by Frank Kameny, founder of the Mattachine Society of Washington, D.C. It was one of the first times gay people had organized to come together and publicly demand their rights here in the U.S. The photos showed a couple of dozen earnest-looking white men in suits walking in circles, holding protest signs. As far as I could tell, there was only one exception, the only woman I could see in the parade of protesting men, a black woman, dressed in stylish office clothes, a white blouse, dark skirt suit, and kitten heels, her chic white-framed cat's-eye sunglasses standing out in the monochrome image. She was carrying a hand-printed sign with bold lettering. The all-caps message reads, Denial of equality of opportunity is immoral. She was right there at the vanguard, so visible. But who was she? My research back in the late 1980s turned up a name for her, Ernestine Eckstein. But I couldn't find her. I only found dead ends. Eventually, I gave up. But fortunately, another LGBTQ scholar and oral historian didn't. I'm Marcia Gallo, and I'm a historian of lesbian and gay and bi and trans culture and lives. Uh, I wrote a book um, entitled Different Daughters, A History of the Daughters of Belitis and the Rise of the Lesbian Rights Movement. In the mid-1960s, Ernestine Eckstein was the vice president of the New York chapter of the homophile organization The Daughters of Belitis, or DOB for short. She was a visionary. She anticipated, predicted, and foreshadowed so many of the issues that would face the LGBTQ community in the decades to come. Ernestine was also a trailblazing cover girl. In June 1966, she became the first black woman to be featured on the cover of The Ladder, the magazine published by D.O.B. Just like me, Marcy Gallo wanted to find Ernestine. I was setting out to challenge the narrative that D.O.B. was this assimilationist, middle-class, 
white ladies group, proper and conventional in all respects. And I was looking for ways to disrupt that narrative. Marcy Gallo didn't find Ernestine per se, but she found her voice. In this episode, for the first time, you're going to hear Ernestine Eckstein in her own words. In 2002, when I was working on my dissertation about the Daughters of Belitis, um, Barbara and Kay were among the first people that I sat down with, of course. And they were showing me all their issues of the latter. Pioneering activist Barbara Giddings was the editor of the latter from 1963 to 1966, and her partner in life and activism, Kayla Husen, was a photojournalist who also wrote for the magazine. And I noticed the black woman on the cover of that famous issue and asked um, Kay who she was, and she said, oh yes, you must know about Ernestine Eckstein. Most of what we know about Ernestine and her role in the pre-Stonewall gay rights movement comes from that June 1966 cover story. That she had been um, vice president of the New York DOB chapter, that she was ahead of her time, that she was pushing people um, to do more social action uh, work. But Kay wanted to let Marcy know that there was more, much more. And she told me about the five or six hour interview that they had done. All the way back in 1965, when Kay and Barbara interviewed Ernestine for the latter article, they taped it. The whole thing. You sit over there so your questions can be heard clearly. We got this on a, on a one and seven eight, so it'll run four hours on the slides. We <laughs> can't possibly use up all that time. Listening to this interview for the first time was like opening a door and walking into the room to meet 33-year-old Barbara Giddings, who's clearly suffering from a cold, 35-year-old Kayla Husen, and rising star of the movement, 24-year-old Ernestine Eckstein, who had moved to New York City from Indiana just two years before. Do you want to say what you studied in college? Yeah, I was um, in journalism, magazine journalism, mm-hmm. uh, in the School of Journalism at Indiana University. Your minor, your first minor is as there are as many credits involved as a major. So in a sense, I had two majors, and then my two minors were uh, psychology and Russian. Mm-hmm. And Russian? Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, wow. Russian. <laughs> did you learn very much? Certainly. In Russian. I want to I'm curious. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that sounds all too familiar. <laughs> She doesn't really say much about her background. All we know is her college years. We know that she was a very good student and that she studied, this was also fascinating, magazine journalism, Russian, and government. Okay. Which reminded me of Lorraine Hansberry, who also studied Russian um, and was also a journalist, of course. They've always reminded me of one another. And as you know, Hansberry had written to the uh, to the latter early on, right before Raisin in the Sun is debuting on Broadway, and says, I support what you're doing, but I just can't get involved. So Ernestine feels like that kind of intersectional person who is using all of her gifts, all of her experiences uh, in her in her political work. And then, uh, then you went to New York for how long? I moved to New York in uh, May of 63, almost three years ago. Uh-huh. And I sort of went through the soul-searching bit of deciding if I were, you know, uh-huh. uh, where I stood. 
And then once having decided that, the next uh, on the agenda was to find a way of being in the movement, kind of, because I always assumed there was a movement or there should be, uh-huh. you know, and having once decided where you are, you then decide what you could do with Really? That. Yeah. You mean you, you decided you were a lesbian and then you, you decided, well, there must be a movement? I'd like to um, it. That is about the way it was, huh. yeah. She just moved to New York because New York seemed like the place to be, she said. Um, knew nothing about gayness in herself or in the world um, and sort of starts to explore that when she comes to New York. People lived in such isolation then about their sexual orientation because there was so, there was so little information. Mm-hmm. Well, there's so many uh, homosexuals that we talk with particularly out in the Midwest or some isolated part of the country, mm-hmm. who never dreamed that there'd be an organization. Really? Well, you know, I, I, I have a lot of faith in New York. Oh, you know, good. Uh, so do I. That's yeah, why you came here? Had you known before that you were a lesbian and you came? No, no, I hadn't known before that I was a lesbian. I, it, it's a very funny kind of thing, because I always had a very strong reactions to women. Um, this was a blank that had never been filled in by anything, reading, experience, nothing through age 22, graduated from, you know, from college. I never know anything about this. And you didn't know there were other people who felt the way you did? No, I didn't. I really didn't. I didn't and what, did, what you know? did you think about your uniqueness? How did it, how did it affect you? Well, I used to think, now, what's wrong with me? Yeah. Um, but I thought maybe, you see, I've always thought of it on the impression, I think, that there was nothing unusual about people reacting to other people regardless of sex. I've never thought of it in terms of homosexuality. But I, I, I've always thought that love, you know, sort of uh, transcended any kind of uh, label, mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, black, white, man, woman, this sort of thing. Well, then you came to New York and you got and to you New did York with all these faggots running around the big shop. <laughs> no, no, as a matter of fact, I had a friend in college who had come to New York earlier. Um, he was my best mm-hmm. friend. I never knew why. It was never a, a sexual relationship, never even a romantic one. Now, he was a homosexual, and I didn't know it until I came here. Did he know it? Yeah. Oh, he knew it. But he didn't tell you. And he didn't tell me, you know. <laughs> so we had a very good relationship going, you know. We could do everything together, you know, really communicate. And just the best of friends, but never any romance. You know, and I, did, I liked it this way, you know, and so did he, and I never uh-huh. understood why. But I never, thought, <laughs> I never questioned why, either. And I came to New York, and he was one of the first person I looked up, and he says, uh, Ernestine, you know I'm gay? And I thought, oh, you're happy, so what? You know, <laughs> I didn't know the term gay. And he explained it to me, and all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden things began to click. Uh, and at this time, I was sort of emotionally involved with my roommate anyway, and I thought, am I sexually, you know, and it, it dawned on me that maybe I was sexually attracted to the girl, and not just emotionally attracted. Yeah. Yeah, so it was like this. It's very funny, you know, it's, it really is. He told you they were all around and you could hardly believe Yeah, you know, and so he sort of introduced me to the homosexual oh. community, you know, because he's a real queen, you know. Oh. I mean, here, and he was a little bit different here in New York than he was in, in Indiana. I'll bet. Yeah, he was. You know, he's, sort of, he's a nice looking guy, and he sort of switches around, you know, and uh, looks at all the boys on the street. He's a real, uh, way out, you know. Um, what was it like for you hearing uh, mm. Ernestine's voice for the first time? It was very exciting. Um, What I thought about the first time I heard the interview was her insistence on um, social action, Um, that it was time for the homophile folks to get themselves out into the streets. Are you thought of as a radical among lesbians? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's really a very hard question to answer. I personally consider myself 
very average and normal in every sense of the word. Not radical, but just simply. Um, this to me is the way to be. Now, I think compared to other lesbians, my ideas are farther to the left than theirs are. Most lesbians that I know endorse picketing, but would not themselves picket. Uh, so as far as ideas are concerned, maybe we're on the same line. Yeah. But, but I sort of go a little bit beyond it in that I will get on the picket line in a different city. <laughs> right. And, and like those great photos of her, the only woman and the only black person on the picket line. With it wearing those white sunglasses. And perhaps she didn't know how iconic that photo would become. I'm sure she didn't, but it has. And she just jumps off the page at you um, because she's gorgeous. <laughs> and she's a black woman wearing a sign about denial of equality is immoral. I mean, she's amazing. There's a photo of her in the um, 1965 uh, protest in front of the White House. Mm-hmm. And I thought, who is this? Yes. Um, and and now I know. Why is Ernestine such an important figure in the pre-Stonewall movement? Mm-hmm. She's pivotal. Um, she is that person who is who encapsulates the discussions, debates that are happening about visibility um, and about even calling it a movement um, as opposed to organizations who were helping to people to adjust to their status in the world, which was sort of the homophile attitude, I think. You know, we're here for one another to make our way in this hostile environment. And she comes along and starts saying, look, we've got to learn from what black folks did. We have to look at the civil rights movement and we've got to get out there, make our demands, know what we're all about and be very visible and public about it. Do you believe in forms of civil disobedience for our movement at this time or in the future? Uh, picketing, I, I regard as very uh, almost a conservative activity now. Oh, you know? no, I, I mean, you sit-ins, sure you, you know, and that kind of thing are the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And all <coughs> an educational process of calling attention to the unjustness of the situation, which is the same thing the Negro did. Uh, then we're back again to the professional persons who say, don't picket, which is a form of political action, mm-hmm. but educate in these uh, hmm, sort of namby-pamby ways, I suppose you would say. Yeah, that, that to me is, is a, a, a difference in definition of education. I you see. you define the picketing as a form of education. I would right? define Absolutely. it that way, too. Yes, oh. definitely. I mean, there's no question about that. I would, too. The, the other thing that's interesting is that I heard Ernestine use the phrase, come out which wasn't in the lexicon at that moment. You know, Barbara talked about revealing ourselves. Uh, Folks talked about becoming more visible, taking off the mask, those kinds of things. She used the term come out, and I thought maybe it's starting to become the way we talked about it. Well, one thing I would like to see is um, a kind of respect for self-development among all homosexuals so that they can can, um, date in public, for instance, you know, openly, mm-hmm. so they can uh, react as other people do to situations publicly, you know, not become professional homosexuals, but feel a kind of freedom, you yeah. know, within themselves. I think yeah. it's a personal thing. I don't think this is part of the movement. I think this is a personal thing. But do you think it's, uh, it's possible in the, in the present climate of opinion for homosexuals who have self-confidence in themselves to do this openly? 
I think it takes a lot of courage. Uh-huh. And I think a lot of people who do it will suffer because of it. But I think any movement needs a certain number of courageous martyrs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and there's no getting around it. You know, that's really the only thing that can be done. You have to come out and be strong enough to accept whatever consequences come, I think. So really you're suggesting that more and more homosexuals declare themselves and act in the ways that they want to, uh, that they would act if, uh, if the restrictions were removed and the prejudice were removed. Exactly. I do. Mm. And you think this will help to abate the prejudice I do. in itself? Yeah, uh, she is so thoughtful and um, provocative, especially the give and take with Barbara and Kay, who are very strong personalities, as you know, and so is she. What I think I love the most, listening again recently, are the pauses when she would stop, not let herself be pushed into a response that she wasn't ready for, and she would take the time either to agree or disagree, often to disagree very gracefully um, with something that they were or arguing about. Um, they wanted her to make very clear, to draw very clear connections between the black civil rights movement and the gay movement. And she was much more thoughtful. I mean, she certainly saw the, the connections, but she also kept saying the gay movement is not where the black civil rights movement is. The gay movement isn't even close. You know, we're still about accepting ourselves, you know. So I, I hearing her um, brought this enigma to life. Um, and there she was on tape, not only on tape, but talking to Barbara Giddings and Kay Lahusen 20 years before, more than 20 years before I interviewed Barbara and Kay, mm-hmm. sounding, they themselves sounding much more tentative yes. than when I knew them later. Interesting. Um, and interviewing Ernestine in a way that suggested they were almost treating her like a specimen. What do you think of this uh, this attitude on the part of homosexuals who are impatient to have their rights now and not simply wait for the slow process of you know, you know, Dr. Pomeroy, for example, mm-hmm. falls back on education. Mm-hmm. No, we've got to wait and educate. Mm-hmm. And the homosexuals who feel strongly about this point of view fault him for that point of view by saying, well, he's a heterosexual and isn't suffering under the system the way we are. Mm-hmm. So I'm, we're just throwing this out to see how, yeah, how yeah, you react to it as one um, who's in an, another minority well, speaking for a moment of the other minority, the Negro minority, um, I feel I find it very difficult to wait as a Negro. Yeah. I think, though, in the homophile movement, you have a different kind of situation. I don't think you have any choice but to wait. That is, I think we cannot be as radical as homosexuals as we can, as we could, and as we do, as Negroes. Because the Negro cause is already widely accepted. Right. You know, and, you know, the right of a man to vote and to work and to go to school, regardless of his color. The homosexual cause is not yet accepted. Mm-hmm. And I think this has to come first, the acceptance. Then you can push as far and as, as often and as hard as you like. The homophile movement and the Negro cause the movement are different. Yeah. I think we have at this, that is we, the homophiles, yeah. have at this point to be, to a certain extent, in a directive. I think this will change as we become more accepted. But everything is based on acceptance at this point, or at least toleration, or at least to get an audience. And we can't even do that yet. 
Are there any ways in which you think our movement could emulate the Negro or other movements? Uh, which it's uh, not doing right now. Uh, I don't find in the homophile movement enough stress on courtroom action. That is, I can't envision at this point President Johnson uh, coming out in favor of a bill for homosexual rights to work in government today. I can't even envision. Um, there being any kind of bill comparable to the 1954 education bill. Uh, I would like to see more test cases in court so the thing can be brought out in the open. And I think the more we have of this, I think we have very little of it now as far as I know. So that's another thing Ernestine was focused on, more court cases. Was that groundbreaking? Yes. Well, there's a, a gay bar in Atlantic City that Ernestine talks about New York DOB helping raise funds for their legal defense. It was really an issue around can gay people even go into a bar and socialize. There had been no misconduct uh, alleged, just you're a bar, gay people come here, we're shutting you down. So things were starting, but it was still very groundbreaking to start to sort of urge those kinds of actions. Yeah, and she was right there. She uses the term uh, transvestite, which was acceptable at that time. It's mm-hmm. not now, but she's asking for the movement to be what movement there was, to be a coalition yes. that includes people we think of as trans people today. Yes. Which I thought, 1965. Amazing. Absolutely. Yes, that's, that's also quite stunning. There are certain broad general problems that we all have as homosexuals, you know, across the board, mm-hmm. so to speak. And we should concentrate on those, the draft, uh, civil service employment, um, the church rejection of us, this kind of thing that, that touches us all. And maybe even the question of, of uh, transvestites. Uh, I think this has been neglected. Anything that, that can affect us all. Well, I'm surprised you threw that in, the transvestites. You mean that we should uh, think about their right to dress as they please without discrimination or... You see, I, I feel uh, that the homophile movement is only part of a, a much larger movement of the erasure of labels. And I think the right of a person to dress as he chooses must necessarily follow when we expand our own philosophy of, of, um, uh, of bringing about change for the homosexual. You know, they have two organizations of their mm-hmm. own, and they're really... A vast, vast number of people just don't realize how many heterosexual men would like to let go and be feminine mm-hmm. in this country. Yeah, well, I'm not saying it's exclusively a homosexual problem, but I am saying it's a problem of sexual identity, you know. Mm-hmm. And so far as society is concerned, the two are lumped together. Yeah, that's And therefore, right. once we solve ours, I see no reason why we cannot begin to expand mm-hmm. into other areas. And, and this one is so closely allied to our own. Think he'll still be around when that time? Oh uh, no, no, I don't think he'll be in my lifetime. No, no, I'm projecting. <laughs> I'm being a social prophet, but uh, yeah. yeah, right. Uh, it, it's the goal, I think, to work for. At a moment when people are are moving much more towards sort of segmentation and labeling, she's saying, mm, I think ultimately we're going to have to be a broad enough tent. So she's sort of forsaging the LGBTQ, et cetera, kind of momentum of the movement. 
in a way, um, Ernestine is kind of educating Barbara and Kay on intersectionality oh, yeah. before the word was in use. Absolutely. Is that your impression? Oh, that's exactly what she was doing. She was she was saying, as Audre Lorde would say a few years later, when I walk into the room, do you see a black person, a woman, a lesbian, a mother? You see all of that. That's all of who I am. And Ernestine is, is, is stating those kinds of um, realities. And you're... you're comment that they were treating her somewhat as a specimen, I think, is really right. I don't know how, and maybe that's why it was a five or six hour interview. I don't know how often, if ever, they had the opportunity to sit down and be honestly quizzing a black lesbian about her ideas, her life, her thoughts, her her vision for the movement. Uh, and they really took advantage. I mean, and she was willing to do it. Uh, but um, I, I think that she uh, embodied something brand new. I regard homosexuality or homosexual love personally as a higher form of love than heterosexual love. Uh, oh, good. No, no, seriously, you know, very seriously, I think, speaking again personally, and I guess mainly as a lesbian, it is much more beneficial to me and much more... I communicate much more easily, sexually, and in every other way with a woman than I do with a man. Therefore, to me, a woman that I am dating and I uh, reach a closer kind of unity than a man and I ever could. And for this reason, to me, it is a higher form of love. But you're saying this is for your own experience, not that you think homosexual love in itself as an entity is better than... Uh, I'm saying potentially it is. Uh-huh, I see. I say uh, it does not, so far as I know, it does not generally reach this, this level from what I've seen. So far as I'm concerned, homosexuals limit themselves too much to sex. Mm-hmm. I think this is created out of need, though. Sex is not as available to homosexuals as it is to heterosexuals, you know? Um, so, so more time and energy are expended on this thing. Exactly. Exactly. That's, mm. that's the problem. And this is why you, you think that social activities are, uh, sponsored by the groups are a good thing, because they will provide the meeting exactly. and the need. Right. But what about charges from uh, the heterosexuals that, the, that, that this makes a procuring agency for, for illegal sex? What yeah. about this? I think we have to decide how far we can go for caring about what heterosexuals think. You know? And we want acceptance. And we want our rights as citizens and as people. But this doesn't mean that all of our activity and all of our goals are defined by other people's filthy minds. Mm-hmm. But the homosexual is hidden, yeah. ex- except for the, the, the stereotypes. You know, and I think they have to become visible, you know, and assert themselves uh, politically in, in, in every way that any other group does. You know, um, and I think once they begin to do this, society will begin to give more and more and more. Well, you think of this as, as what's involved in going out to meet society. Oh, of course, yeah. You don't think of it in terms of putting on a skirt and getting out of the bar. No, no, I don't, I don't think of it in terms of that. I still think people ought to be free to do, to uh, assert themselves as they choose. And if people want to go to bars, that's their business. If they want to wear pants, that's their business also. Um, you don't think in terms of being more responsible, a better citizen? 
Well, I personally don't know exactly what the definition of a responsible citizen is, <laughs> other than that you vote and that you write to your congressman, you know, and uh, that you hold down a responsible job, that you are somehow a productive human being. Aside from that very broad definition, I don't know what responsibility means, you know. I know it doesn't mean that you conform in your clothing or in your, your religious practices, this sort of thing, or in your sexual preference. Uh-huh. Well put. So Ernestine Eckstein is on the cover of The Ladder and gives this visionary interview to Barbara and Kay. Um, and then she essentially vanishes. What happens? What we know are nothing conclusive, but there's little hints. For example, Frank Kameny. And a quick reminder that Frank Kameny was the founder of the Mattachine Society of Washington, D.C., and a proud militant homosexual who coined the phrase, gay is good. He was the organizer of the 1965 protests that Ernestine marched in. She had invited him to speak to the New York chapter and was overruled by the chapter and had to disinvite him. So between the time that she gives the interview to Kay and Barbara and it appeared in the latter, which was 66, June 66, she's no longer vice president. So my guess is that she couldn't manage the um, conservatism of the chapter. She sticks around for a little longer, but not as a leader, and then goes to the Bay Area. Um, And all we know is what other people have said, she said, which is that she was sick and tired of the infighting. So it seems like there was a severe break for her. And I guess um, an awareness that there was a group she could put her considerable energies into, which was Black Women Organized for Action, which is in itself an amazing organization in the Bay Area, um, led by phenomenal Black women activists. And maybe her own maturation as an activist was leading her much more into Black feminism. Um, That's what it seems like. Ernestine Eckstein is a pseudonym. Yes. How do you feel about revealing her given name? I think I still come down on a fairly conservative side of treating it as the name she used in the movement. Eckstein is the name she used, therefore that's what I used. And as I continue to write about her, I will continue to use it. So even though her name is out there publicly, you prefer not to use it? I do. I do. I'm, I'm imagining what her wishes might be. Um, even though we've never met, we've never talked. What do we know about Ernestine for the last few years of her life? Um, and when did she die? Died in 92. I know that she she died in San Pablo, California, which is in the East Bay. And I don't know what she died from, although I had heard from a woman who knew her in the Black Women Organized for Action group, who's also now passed away, that she hadn't been well. So that's about as much as I know. I don't know if she, I like to think she had friends and a partner and a good life there. So if there's anyone out there listening who knew Ernestine Eckstein, please yes. um, write to me, Eric Marcus, um, eric at makinggayhistory.org, and let us know. We'd love to know, know more about this incredibly important, pivotal person in the movement. Yes. Um, who thought of it as a movement before most people did. Yes. And we don't know that much. But we know, thanks to you, 
we know a lot more than we did before. Oh, well, thanks to those who did interviews and kept records yes, of them. Yes. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining oh, us thank today. Thank you, Eric. This has been wonderful. Huge thanks to everyone who makes Making Gay History possible. Executive producer, Sarah Birmingham, Audio engineer, Pran Bandy. Producer Josh Gwynn, production coordinator Inga Dataya, photo editor Michael Green, and social media producer Denio Lorenko. Special thanks to Genoise Berman. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Making Gay History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media, with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division, which provided us with the Ernestine Eckstein archival tape and the One Archives at the USC Libraries. Season four of this podcast has been made possible with funding from the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Calamus Foundation, and our listeners like Carol and Dick Rifkind. Carol and Dick have been supporters of Making Gay History since before there was a podcast, and personal supporters and dear friends for nearly 40 years. Dick died on New Year's Day. He was 88. Our hearts go out to Carol and her family. Dick was a man of few words, so I listened when he offered advice. About making gay history, he said, think big, and we have. You can have a look at makinggayhistory.org to see how Dick's advice has inspired us to share these stories beyond the podcast. So long, until next time. Are you still there? Here's a little something extra. I told you at the top of the show that Ernestine Eckstein was a trailblazing cover girl. Well, she was also a slightly reluctant one. Having your face plastered on the front cover of a magazine for lesbians carried big risks in the 1960s. But Barbara and Kay wanted to find a way to make it work. Well, listen, Ernestine, I have mm-hmm. a feeling there might be a way of taking a picture of you for the cover mm-hmm. that would not imply that your features are being concealed, but that nonetheless would have this effect. Any way you can do it. There are several ways. What, you can blur somebody going along on a motor scooter, or (laughs) if you have a motor scooter. As long as my supervisor in the office could not look at this and say, now, Ernestine, I recognize (coughs) your eyes in that, you know, uh, Uh, really, uh, I'm willing to try anything. We never show a picture unless someone signs a release, so. Uh, (laughs) Obviously, she's willing to see a picture of a girl like this that's a half face that Uh we're going to be using sometimes. The only thing I objected to that after I had it was that it made it fly half a woman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because we shot you in a car mirror. You see, yeah, and at, yeah. at that much of a distance, you can't really tell too much. Well, you don't, you don't ride a motor scooter, do you? I'm going to take a girl on a motor Have a look at the episode notes at makinggayhistory.com to see a contact sheet from that shoot. Apparently, the motor scooter idea didn't pan out. So long. Until next time. No, I mean it this time. <laughs>